This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Truth and Fiction by Sylvia Townsend Warner, which was published in The New Yorker in December of 1961. Clive saw what the boy was looking at, a stranger carrying a bag. Of course, that was the answer. He smiled at the boy, who did not return his smile, and walked back to the front door, mounted its pretentious steps, and pulled the bell handle. The story was chosen by Elif Batuman, whose most recent novel, Either Or, was published earlier this year. Hi, Elif. Hi, Deborah. So when I asked you to be a guest on the podcast, you went down a kind of rabbit hole of reading archival fiction that took you to many other writers before you landed on Sylvia Townsend Warner. So what led you to her? Um, well, I love archives, so I was just really enjoying poking around. And, you know, Sylvia Townsend Warner was on my radar as a writer who I was interested in reading more about. I don't know very much about her work at all. I guess I heard about her from friends who were really into her, mostly in England. And just the fact that she was a uh, a lesbian and she lived with a woman her whole life and she was a communist. Then I heard about Summer Will Show when New York Review of Books reissued it. And it's a historical novel in the 1848 revolution. And it's about this woman who leaves her husband and then takes up with her husband's mistress and becomes politicized. And it was presented to me as like Flaubert's sentimental education, but like leftist and lesbian. And I was like, <laughs> you know, hot dog. <laughs> but but I, so I tried to read it and it, it wasn't the book that I wanted it to be. So then I thought I would look and see what, because I remembered she was a short story writer. And then I saw she wrote like 140 something stories in The New Yorker. And then I was looking at them and like all the last ones that she wrote were about elves. And <laughs> <laughs> then I was like, how did she get the elf stories in The New Yorker? And then I was reading about it. And I read this thing by Daniel Menneker where he's like, yeah, William Maxwell just loved the elves. And like the rest of us were all like enough with the elves, but he just loved them. And then the 90s, he wrote a letter that was like, um, I'm just rereading the elf stories. And like, I was right. They're great. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just found her very endearing. Uh huh. And what made you pick this story, Truth and Fiction? Um, it was largely the title. And then when I started to read it, I'm very interested in stories that represent how real experience gets transmuted into stories. And it was cool to see that thematized. It's interesting that you picked it for the title because the title was changed later. I saw. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I would have read it if it was called Stranger with a Bag. Yeah, it became Stranger <laughs> with a Bag, which is a completely different idea. But which title do you think is more uh, representative of what's going on in the story? Um. I mean, they're they're both in there. I mean, I don't know. I prefer truth than fiction. <laughs> um, what would you say without giving anything away that the story is about, maybe on a thematic level? Um, maybe like the gap between how people see themselves and want to be seen and the stories that we all tell about ourselves in the world and how those sometimes come up against reality in um, distressing ways. <laughs> okay, great. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Elif Batuman reading Truth and Fiction by Sylvia Townsend Warner. Truth and Fiction 
After three years as a traveling salesman, Clive Peters supposed he knew every detail of the East Anglian landscape he covered, whether he went southward to Bungie and Beckles or inland through the Cambridgeshire Fens. The firm that employed him was old-fashioned and without enterprise. He only went out two days a week, working the rest of the time in the office as a clerk. The landscape through which he traveled, going by local trains, for the previous salesman had met his death in a car accident, for which Mr. Ingham, a paternal employer, had never ceased to blame himself, from one market town to another, was not the sort of landscape in which details escape one's attention. If a new milking shed were built or an old barn pulled down or a tree uprooted by the gales that blew in from the North Sea, Clive would have noticed it and marked it down in his memory as an event and something to speculate about. But now, glancing out of the train window, he saw a house that had never been there before. Square and somber and planted massively behind a screen of overgrown laurels and tossing ilexes, it looked as though the time of year had put it there, a corroboration of the dark, waterlogged November fields and the dull sky. But really it was just that he had never happened to notice it before. It was quite an old house. It must have been there for years. It stood about half a mile from the track, too far to see it as more than a picture. But he had an instant conviction that it was uninhabited, which, on examination, he traced to the fact that though this was a Monday, there was no washing out. It was a house in which there would be no place for a spin dryer. Everything would be done in the old way, the washing pegged to a line, the pork meat for pies and galantines chopped with a sharp knife on a wooden board, the carpets swept with tea leaves. The spell had fallen on him so completely that simultaneously he knew the house to be uninhabited and knew all about its former inhabitants, chapel-goers, upright, hard-working, close-fisted, bleakly suspicious of all customs but their own, yet secreting a kind of sturdy coziness, bred of duty and self-satisfaction. While they lived there, the core of the house was safety and prosperity. Now they were gone, and the house remained for his possession, a solemn plaything. The house slid out of sight but remained solidly in his mind. He saw himself approaching it, the figure in the foreground. Presently, he was near enough to hear the swish of the ilexes, the laurel's dry rattle. In the garden, hoary gooseberry bushes were laced with strings of last summer's bindweed. Trailing brambles caught at his feet but did not delay him. The house was certainly empty. Sure enough, on its weather side, a back door had rotted from its hinges. He walked in, meeting the raw smell of a cold hearth, a smell mixed of soot and rusty iron. He went up the stairs and wandered from room to room. In one of them, a discoloring illuminated text flapped on the wall, stirred by the wind blowing down the chimney. Be ye also ready in a garland of wheat and poppies. He was too deeply absorbed to notice the train slowing down. Now it stopped. The station was called Yetton Halt. He had never known the train to stop there before. He heard a voice say, Here you are, Bill. 
and a heavy parcel thrown down on the platform. Before he knew what he was doing, he got out, carrying his bag of samples. Before he could think better of it, the train was moving on. Bill was walking away with the parcel. There was no one else about. Clive thought, if I am killed, there will be no one to give evidence that I left the train at Yetton Halt. The thought pleased him. In his regular days between work and home, there was no room for even a possible anonymity. Outside the station, a road branched east and west, and he turned eastward. Though he was uncertain how far away the house might be, he judged this could not be more than four or five miles back. Standing alone and within sight of the railway, it should be easy to find, if he kept within sight of the railway telegraph poles, he must hit it sooner or later. For a mile or so, the road kept level with the railway, then it veered suddenly and went under the track by a tunnel. It would be fatal to get on the wrong side of the track. So he retraced his steps to where he had noticed a lane, which branched off in the direction he wanted. The lane ran zigzagging between tall hedges. He soon lost his sense of orientation, and whenever he came to a left-hand gate and looked hopefully over it, some obstacle, a further hedge or a stand of tall winter kale, interposed itself between him and any chance sight of the telegraph poles. But he kept on and felt a kind of obstinate enjoyment. He was splashed with mud, his arms ached from the weight of the bag, it was nearly half past two, and he had left his parcel of sandwiches in the train. He was behaving like a madman and would have to account for it, but it was a break and worth it. He was still obstinately enjoying himself when he heard an engine whistle. With a burst of joy that denounced his previous enjoyment, he scrambled through the hedge and began to run across country. He ran on and on, scattering a herd of bullocks, setting up a flock of curlews that were feeding in a marshy meadow. He swung himself over a gate into a rickyard, where blown chaff streamed across his vision like a sallow snowstorm. He stooped under a strand of barbed wire, stood up, dizzied with breathlessness, and saw the row of telegraph poles and the railway track. The train had vanished, but the smell of coal smoke remained. So, now he had only to find the house. He walked on soberly, in line with the railway track, and presently, as in a dream, the house reappeared and was instantly recognizable, though, as in a dream, it looked quite different. Seen from ground level, it lacked the compactness and drama of its first presentation and had instead an upstart, ungainly appearance, its chimneys too tall, its roof too sharply pitched and furbelowed by ornate barge boards. It was smaller, too, than he had supposed. It was not so easy of access, either. The ilexes and laurels were fenced in by a railing of tall iron spikes, and he had to walk on to the farther side before he found the gate, which was approached by a track across a muddy pasture, branching off, no doubt, from some farm lane, for he could hear the shouting voice of a man driving cows. The gate was of iron, like the fencing, and with the same air of having been brought from a town. Beyond the gate, a path, 
running between a laurel hedge and a shaggy lawn on which there were some rabbit hutches, led to the front door and on round the corner of the house. Clive followed it, because in his imagined house, the door rotted from its hinges had been at the back. The compulsion of the imagined house was stronger than the disenchantment of what he saw, and it still seemed to him that if he went on, he would find the door rotted from its hinges and make his way into that other house and go upstairs and read the text bordered with wheat and poppies. Meanwhile, the rational part of him continued to make the rational assertion that, having come so far, it would be poor-spirited to give up his intention just because the house turned out to be uninviting and rather pretentious with its lowering barge boards and oversized sash windows. Looking with sidelong distaste at one of these windows, he saw a boy whose pale face was pressed to the glass, whose eyes were fixed on him. A moment later, the vision disappeared, for the boy's breath had been released and misted over the pane. A skinny hand wiped the mist away, and the face looked out once more, with the stare of a full moon emerging from a cloud. As though the staring gaze had shown it to him, Clive saw what the boy was looking at, a stranger carrying a bag. Of course, that was the answer. He smiled at the boy, who did not return his smile, and walked back to the front door, mounted its pretentious steps, and pulled the bell handle. He heard no footsteps, but presently the door opened and the boy stood on the threshold. He looked to be about ten years old, very near the age of Clive's own son, but small for his age. Anyone in, Sonny? B, said the boy, who had a cold in his head. I wonder if I can interest you in these samples of floor and furniture polish. Clive opened the bag. All made locally with real beeswax, you don't find many polishes nowadays with the real beeswax. Perhaps if I leave this card, you could tell your mother. I have it got a buther dough. She went away last Tuesday with Jib Basid. I saw them go off together on his boater bike. And Dad says he would have her back, not if she came at her bedded dees. Shaking off the impression that there must be something superlatively appealing about a mended knee, Clive said, Oh, dear. And then, I'm sure I'm sorry. So abye. I liked Jib. He bade me laugh. Clive looked at the skinny, unappetizing child, framed against the recession of that long, dark entry and the stairway ascending under the bleak glare of another of those oversized windows, and thought that Jim Mason must have talents for the impossible. One could imagine a woman's laugh flaring out in such a house, but not, not the laughter of a child, and there was nothing he could do about it, and pity was unavailing. You mustn't stand here, Sonny. You'll make that cold of yours worse, and I must be going. He stooped and fastened the bag. A stranger with a bag. Well, 
At least he must have supplied a brief diversion, an incident in a winter afternoon. Cub id, said the boy. Why, Sonny, that's very nice of you. I wish I could, but I'm on my rounds, you see, and I've got a long way to go yet. Cub id, the boy repeated. And what would your dad say? I don't suppose he'd approve of you asking strangers into the house. Cub id, the boy's voice, which is cold rendered totally expressionless, rose to a peremptory shriek. Cub id, cub id, cub id. His hands fastened on Clive's wrist like pinchers, like red-hot pinchers, for they were burning with fever. Well, for two minutes then, just to settle you back by the fire and see that you're comfortable. The boy flitted down the passage before him and opened a door into a high-ceilinged room. It was cold and cavernous, and the glow of a small electric heater darkened it rather than warmed it. Is this where you've been sitting all this afternoon? The boy was shaking up a cushion and did not reply. Dull work having to nurse a cold, isn't it? Still, better indoors than out on a day like this. What rain we've been having. And gales, too. A train was passing. The reverberation in the chimney seemed to decant it into the room. But he's too old for trains now thought Clive. Though I don't suppose gales mean much to you in a house like this. It looks uncommonly solid, built to last. The boy was still fidgeting with the armchair. Having beaten up its cushions, he was now diving into the cranny between the back and the seat. Clive wandered about the room, trying to make conversation. Are those your rabbits in the hutches near the gate? They were. After so long a silence, it was almost disconcerting to be answered. But Dow, we have eaten the... We ate old Roger yesterday. The statement was so flat that it was not even unfeeling. At least the boy had finished his obscure fidgeting with the chair and begun to talk again. When I was your age, I had a tame rat. I used to take it to school with me in my pocket, and one day... I say, Sonny, what's that? Take care you don't cut yourself. The boy had somehow produced a carving knife and was fingering the blade. And that's not the way to handle it, running your finger across its edge. You must use your finger and thumb if you want to feel how sharp it is. I'll show you. He took the knife and demonstrated. Sharp as a razor. Let me tell you, you were very lucky not to give yourself a nasty cut. Well, here you are. Be more careful next time. The boy put his hands behind his back and shook his head vehemently. Doe, it's for you. But, Sonny, I don't want a carving knife. It's for you. Half mad with loneliness, thought Clive. His mother's gone off with a man. His rabbits are eaten. He's got nothing to care for. Then I come along, a romantic stranger. I want you to murder Dad. What? I want you to murder Dad. 
Is that what you asked me in for? said Clive after a pause. The boy nodded. A delicate pink color had come into his cheeks. His eyes glittered. Clive laid the knife on the table and sat down in the armchair. It was a more fatherly attitude, and his knees were shaking. No, look here, Sonny. This sort of thing won't do. I suppose you've been watching the telly. We haven't got a telly. Dad wouldn't get one. We never have anything like other people do. Birderhib. Birderhib. It's all he's good for. Blow your nose, said Clive. What, lost your handkerchief? Have mine then. Now, listen to me. I'm not going to murder your dad. Neither are you. Murder's a fool's game, not to mention a crime. Do you ever feel afraid? The boy glanced furtively at the black mouth of the chimney, then out of the window at the tossing ilexes. No. I can tell you this. Whatever you may feel afraid of, a murderer feels ten times more afraid, a million times more afraid. And because he's a murderer, he's afraid of everything, everyone he meets, every knock at the door, every noise. The noise was quite perceptible and was the noise of a bicycle being wheeled along the path. There's Dad, said the boy. Clive leaped up. The bicycle was being wheeled past the window. Presumably, there was a shed at the back of the house. There was still time for him to get away. At the same moment, the boy switched on the light. It lit up the small, dejected figure of a man with a pointed beard. He turned and saw Clive standing by the window. His look of oppression deepened. He attempted to prop the bicycle against a bush. At each attempt, the bush gave way and the bicycle subsided. Finally, he left it lying and turned toward the front door. While the door was opened and carefully closed again, and a swishing Macintosh shaken and hung on a peg, and a tread that would have better matched a larger man came along the passage, Clive avoided looking at the boy. Hello, Tony. So you've got a visitor. Clive began to explain, reopening the bag and drawing out a couple of tins to substantiate his words. The sound of his voice embarrassed him. It was so full and ringing, so ostentatiously at variance with the flat, dejected tones that replied, Hmm. Yes. I see. Very kind of you, I'm sure. But I'm afraid I don't want any polish just now. No, no, of course not. I quite understand. The words were no sooner spoken than Clive realized their appalling appropriateness. He hurried on. And I'm sure it's a reward in itself to be asked in so kindly by Sonny here. Mentioning the boy, he dared to glance toward him and saw the knife still lying on the table. To tell the truth, I've always been rather interested by this house. I often notice it from the train. Quite a period piece, isn't it? Puts one in mind of Dickens, Pickwick, and what do you call it, Hall, and that house in the marshes where the old lady lived. Yes, they don't build such houses nowadays. It's got the date over the door, 
I don't know if you observed it, 1887, same date as Queen Victoria's Jubilee. You could call it historic. Hasn't had an alteration since, interposed the boy, as though repeating something known by rote. Yes, it has, Tony. You know it has. It's got the electricity. And I've a good mind to take it out again. Nothing but trouble from first to last. I don't know why anyone should complain of a house like this. It's a splendid house, everything of the best, and built by an Indian colonel to retire to. Got its own water supply, and a patent pump to raise it, and a game larder, and any number of cupboards, and a marble pedestal basin in the downstairs lavatory. You'd think anyone would be happy to live in such a house. So they would be if they feared God and knew what was best for them. The rats do. They do what's best for them. That's why Bother slept with B, to keep the rats off. But now I'm going to tame them. I'm going to have billions and billions of tame rats. This man said he had a tame rat, and he took it to school with him in his pocket. The chin beard, as though it had a life of its own, quite independent of the meager flesh it was fastened in, suddenly bristled. So, it's you that have been putting ideas into the boy's head, is it? That's what you've been coming here for, whenever my back was turned. I knew it. I knew it, but I tell you, I've had too much of that sort of thing. First, there's Jim Mason going off with my wife. Now it's you sneaking in after my boy. And what's that knife meant for lying there on the table? There you were in the dark, waiting to get me as soon as I came in the room. You and your polishes, you and your soft solder about books you've never read in your life. No need to read nowadays. You can see it all on the telly. Yes, and pick up those clever ideas about carving knives. But two can play at that game. He snatched the knife and attacked. Clive caught up a chair to defend himself. I'll get you. I'll get you. Lunging at Clive, he became entangled in the legs of the chair and fell, pulling the chair down with him. The knife was jolted from his grasp. He lay sprawled face downward, gasping for breath. A small trail of blood appeared on the carpet. The boy darted forward, light as a ferret. He's bleeding. He's dying. He's hit his nose against the chair, Clive said. And presently, I suppose, he'll be wanting a handkerchief too. Well, I can't oblige him, that's all. Here, take that knife and for God's sake, put it back where it belongs. I'm sick of the pair of you. It seemed to him that he had invaded a very disagreeable family. In a minute, the man sat up. He was weeping and mopped his eyes and his nose alternately. I can't go on. I just can't go on, he lamented. God knows I've always done my best, and look what happens to me. I love my wife. I don't look at another woman. I take her out of Woolworth's and put her in the splendid house and make a lady of her. I slave to keep the roof over our heads, and she goes off to live in a bungalow with a motor mechanic. 
I do everything I can for the boy. I keep a smiling face for his sake. I get up at the middle of the night to boil milk for him, and he hates me. And today, when I go to see my lawyer, first he keeps me waiting for nearly an hour, and then he tells me I can't ask for damages, not for the wife of my bosom, because it's common knowledge how unkindly I treated her. Unkindly. What about the way she's treated me? And there you stand, grinning. Grin on. Grin by all means. Your time hasn't come yet. I wouldn't dream of laughing at you, Clive said. I'm sure I'm very sorry for you. But he knew that he had smiled. For the man's nose, rapidly swelling, made him talk just as the boy did, and the words, get up at the biddle of the dight to boil bilk, had been too much for him. The boy had opened a book and feigned to be absorbed in it. His hate no longer warmed him. He sat hunched up and shivering, a sickly child, in terror of rats and dark corners and swaying trees. But suffering and depravity had put their aristocratic stamp on his pallid face. There could be no doubt which of these two would be master. Dad was now on his feet, rubbing his shins and groaning. You don't happen to have such a thing as a bottle of liniment in that bag, I suppose. I'm afraid not. I might have known it. He spoke as though this were the culmination of his misfortunes and injuries. And I really must be getting on, Clive said. Good night. Don't trouble to show me out. I know the way. He saw the beard begin to bristle again and the fury of suspicion mounting. The boy must have seen it too, though he continued to read. A smile crossed his face, as though something in the book had amused him. Tony, the man said, where are your manners? Get up and say good night. The boy rose and bowed with formality. Good night. Just in time, said Clive, slamming the door behind him and running down the path. Phew, just in time. At the same moment, the laurel hedge caught him in a dragonish embrace, and, remembering the rabbit hutches, he went on more cautiously. It was the ambiguous interval of winter nightfall, when one seems to be wading through darkness as through knee-high water while there is still light overhead. But soon it would be unequivocally dark, and though he was out of that nightmare house, he had still to find his way home. Ahead of him was the lane, where he had heard the man shouting at cows. It seemed likely that this was a continuation of the lane he had followed so patiently and which would have brought him here if he had not left it at the call of the engine whistle. His best hope would be to turn to the right and follow its windings till it joined the road he had taken from Yetton Halt. He did so and had walked for what seemed quite a long way when a picture came into his mind's eye of himself sitting at Yetton Halt, watching trains that didn't stop there go by. So it would really be more sensible to follow the lane in the other direction, for this at least would aim him toward the railway, toward reason and an ordered world. But direction wasn't his only trouble. He must also decide on a story that would somehow account for his being so muddy and so belated, a story that would satisfy Ella tonight and Mr. Ingham tomorrow, for Ella being Mrs. Ingham's niece, 
he could not expect the story to remain under his own roof. I tripped and wrenched my ankle. But if he had tripped anywhere on the path of duty, there would have been a telephone within reach. I got into the wrong train at the junction. But the train would not have carried him into a plowed field and muddied him to the knees. I heard there was a family who had just moved into an old manor house with masses of oak paneling. But Mr. Ingham had little sympathy for enterprise and would have even less for an enterprise that had not resulted in as much as an order for a three-shilling tin of Busy Bee's household wax, their cheapest line. So what was he to say? And which way should he turn in order to say it? As he stood hesitating and hearing the wind mutter along the hedge, he saw a shaft of light and heard the approach of what must be a very old and slow car. The slower, the better. He might thumb a lift. The car, bouncing and rattling, seemed to be close at hand, but its light traveled onward. There must be a crossroads. If it were enough of a crossroads, it would have a signpost. He hurried on. There was a signpost, but he had to swarm up it before he could read by the flicker of his cigarette lighter that to his left was Branham, five miles, and to his right, Yetton St. Gabriel, two miles. Branham had it. He knew Branham. It was a place on his rounds. He lit a cigarette, knocked the worst of the mud off his shoes, and set off again, this time on a good, hard-surfaced road that rang reassuringly under his tread. And now all he had to think of was his story. Why not, after all, include a measure of the interesting truth leading up to it by that hearsay manor house? He was on his way to the manor house, which was much farther off than it had been reported to be, when he noticed a solitary house which stood a little back from the road and had a sort of moat around it. The strange thing was that even before he drew level with it, he felt as though the house had a call for him. If it had not been for one lighted-up window, he would have supposed it was empty and deserted. Then, glancing curiously at the lighted window, he saw a man with a knife in his hand, chasing a little boy round a table. Not wasting a moment, he jumped the moat, ran to the window, and banged on it, shouting, you leave that child alone. The man threw open the window and leaned out, saying, Mind your own business. Just what I mean to do, retorted Clive, and sprang in over the windowsill. At this juncture, Mr. Ingham's voice interposed itself, exclaiming, It's a case for the Prevention of Cruelty Society, Peters, if not for the police. We'll report this right away. While Mrs. Ingham cried, You tell me where he lives, Clive and I'll teach him something about carving knives, that I will. So no sooner was Clive in the room than the man's whole demeanor changed, and, dropping the knife, he came up to Clive and wrung his hand, saying, God must have sent you, God must have sent you, what mightn't I have done otherwise? And then, bit by bit, it all came out, how the man's wife had left him that same morning, how when he got back from market, he found her gone, and a letter saying she wanted an easier life with a younger man, how he had found the child cold and hungry and crying for his mammy, and how, in his desperation, he had decided to put an end to himself. But first, he must take the child with him.
Clive, feeling that he had indeed been called, realized that there was nothing for it but to give up all idea of the manor house and stay with the frantic husband till he calmed down again. Quite right, Peters. Quite right. So he quickly kindled up a nice wood fire, and there they sat, going into it all, till it was time to turn on the football news. This helped to clear the air, and after a little more chat, Clive rose to depart, seeing that his work was done. I don't suppose we'll ever meet again, were the man's last words, but I'll remember you in my prayers for the rest of my life. Deeply religious, which made the wife's action an even crueler blow. He was more to be pitied than blamed. More to be pitied than blamed, Pom. More to be pitied than blamed, Pom. Marching to the rhythm of the words, carried on toward Branham by their asservation, Clive felt that he had got both truth and fiction safely under his control. The story was certainly a case of making a silk purse out of a sow's ear, but he had managed it. The purse was constructed and ought to satisfy everybody. All that remained was to put the true afternoon firmly out of his mind and rehearse the fictional one till he was word perfect in it. Manor house to house, not forgetting the premonition, then the lighted up window, then the man with the carving knife and the terrified child dodging him round the table, then the banging on the window and the window thrown up, and his retort, another touch not to forget, and his entry. Suddenly and appallingly, Ella's voice broke in. But what about the poor little boy, Clive? Didn't you do anything for him? Didn't either of you men think of giving him his supper? You said he was hungry. The sow's ear bristled out of the purse. The real child started up before him, dancing like a ferret at the sight of his father's blood. No wonder he had shirked facing the issue of the fictional child. He, too, was the father of a son. That was Elif Batiman reading Truth and Fiction by Sylvia Townsend Warner. The story appeared in The New Yorker in December of 1961 and was included in Warner's collection, A Stranger with a Bag and Other Stories, which was published in 1966 and reissued by Faber and Faber in 2011. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. 
The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Alf, let's start with the house. The beginning of the story tells us just how familiar with this landscape Clive is and how impossible it would be for him to miss any details. And then he suddenly sees a house he's never seen before. Do you feel like we're entering a kind of fairy tale in which houses can just appear? There's something kind of magical about this place? Or do you think that Townsend Warner is just doing this to show us what an unreliable representative of his own mental state he is? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's the second. I think that he has this idea of himself as someone who knows this landscape by heart and would have noticed if even a milking shed had been put up. But actually, there was a whole house there that he didn't necessarily notice. Yeah. I mean, do you think he actually does see details? I mean, that part of the story I really identified with because I know that there's routes that I've traveled many times that I think I know by heart, and I often don't notice giant glaring things about (laughs) them. And yet I think of myself as someone with an eye for detail, which is also true. I guess it's just like there's a lot of details in the world, and like he notices some of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Why this house in particular, why does it capture his imagination in the way that it does? Well, it's interesting with truth and fiction because it, for him, it corresponds to fiction that he's read. He's like, oh, it's like a house from Dickens. Although then it seems like he's not a very close reader of Dickens. Like it's (laughs) the stuff that he's saying doesn't sound quite right. But he immediately has this whole very visual idea about it. I mean... I guess another thing I kind of liked about this story was there was like kind of a murder angle about it, like where he gets off the train and he's like, oh, I could be killed here and nobody would. would Yeah. And that's like a good thing. (laughs) And like he sees the house and there's something it's like it's like a crime scene. Like there's the washing wasn't out, even though it was a Monday. Like that feels kind of like a detective sort of detail. And he's constructing a whole story around it. And he's like deducing the people who live there by their absence, which seems like kind of a detective story thing to be going on. Um, and then later, they keep alluding to the kinds of stories that are on the television, which I guess involve people being like stabbed with carving knives. I don't know. Like the whole thing seems to have corresponded to some kind of story in his mind that we can kind of reconstruct, but maybe not completely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that he just instantly embarks on this story about this house that mm-hmm. he he makes up. And it's presented as something that is also somehow presented to him by his own brain, I suppose. And I mean, it makes me wonder if that's perhaps Townsend Warner talking about the act of writing fiction, mm-hmm. how how stories do present themselves to you. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I guess what I like about it is it's kind of shameful. Like the whole thing just feels really embarrassing. His decision to get off the train just seems crazy. And suddenly he's like, if you look at those distances that he's walking, it's like, oh, he's just going to walk 30 minutes in this direction, or it's only five miles to that town. Like the indignity of like going on this long journey just because like he thought of something and because of some idea of adventure that he has in his head that he's like trying to sustain, even though it's 
kind of being contradicted by everything that felt really like familiar and true to me. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you gone down any muddy country lanes in search of a story? I mean, I, I feel like that's what my whole adolescence was. Like, I feel like I did little else than like, you know, get stuck in mud because I thought something interesting was going to happen. And then it wasn't. But I was like valiantly holding that up as like a story itself. <laughs> He's sort of a writer, I guess. Um, but he could imagine anything inside that house. And what he imagines is empty rooms and discolored picture on the wall that says, be ye also ready, which is um, what Jesus says in the New Testament to warn people to be prepared for the second coming. It seems sort of inappropriately grand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I looked that up. It's from this really creepy passage that talks about, like, there's going to be two women in the field and one is going to be taken away and one is going to be there. And Oh, and then there's something about a house, right? Like, if the man knew that his house was going to be burgled, he would have been keeping a better eye on his house. So there's something about a house where the people were sort of, like, spirited away. Like, yeah, you're right. He could have imagined anything. And then he imagines this, like, empty house, but he also imagines the people. And that's kind of, like, another thing I liked about this story. It starts out, like, kind of boring and just... Like maybe if you're really into the English countryside, then you're really digging the beginning of the story. But um, I was having a hard time concentrating. And then that first moment of like voice is that description of those people who are like secreting a kind of cozy self-satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, this guy's funny. And like he somehow generated those people out of that picture and he went to find that. Mm hmm. Even though he knows they're gone, or in, Even, his, yeah. in his vision, they're gone. Yeah. They've left this house behind. Yeah. He is funny, and so is the story at times. Do you think Townsend Warner intends us to be sort of laughing at him or with him? or? I think both. I mean, there's something so ridiculous about the situation that he ends up in, but I don't know. I just found it really relatable that you make one kind of decision because of some idea that you have about adventure and then it just sort of snowballs into like suddenly you're in this like house and some kids like murder my dad and you're like, how did I get here? It seems like the second that the story he imagined proves not to be the truth, he starts another one. Mm -hmm. There's that wonderful moment as he's approaching the house and he's sort of disappointed because he can't find this rotten door and he sees the boy in the window and suddenly he's looking out the window as the boy seeing the stranger with a bag mm -hmm. and inhabiting, you know, a character mm -hmm. uh, in the story that he's now imagining. So it's sort of like wonderfully creative of him. <laughs> <laughs> It almost feels like that was the point of his trip was like to get to see himself through the eyes of this boy and to be like, hmm, don't I look romantic, a stranger with a bag, <laughs> <laughs> which clearly means something to him. It's funny that she not only changed the name of the story to stranger with a bag, but she liked that phrase so much that she called the whole book stranger with yeah, a bag. I wonder yeah. what that what that means. I mean, maybe in, in her own secret code, it meant truth and fiction. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Or maybe it just means the, the unknowability yeah. of what, what can arrive. You can look out your window and see a stranger in a bag, and yeah. you don't know what's inside either of them. Yeah. Yeah. And then, in fact, it turns out that the weirdness is not in the bag or in the stranger. No. It's in the house. So <laughs> <laughs> 
think about that line where he does, um, as though the staring gaze had shown it to him, Clive saw what the boy was looking at, a stranger carrying a bag. Of course, that was the answer. Yeah, that's an interesting line, right? What that was the answer, because what was the question? What was the question? Yeah. I mean, also at the end of the story, he's really concerned with like how his father-in-law is going to perceive him and the story that other people are telling about him. And so he's kind of like, what is the story that people are telling about me? Or like, what is that, what is that boy looking at? Who am I? I'm the stranger with the bag. And then we get a story that's full on like gothic mm-hmm. um, melodrama. What happens in that house? <laughs> I mean, you know, one thing that attracted me about this story is I've been I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between truth and fiction. And like it's like there's two ways that we define fiction, and one is by genre. Like it's the New Yorker fiction podcast, so it's short stories and novels. And then there's another thing that we mean by fiction, which is that it's something that's been invented and isn't true. And I've been thinking a lot about why those two things should have coincided. And I've been reading about it. And there's, you know, different people have different explanations. And there's like a legal explanation, which is, oh, you know, fiction and the novel both arose at the same time as certain kinds of like prosecutability for slander. And so you had to make things up to avoid prosecution. But I'm also really interested in the psychoanalytic interpretations, which is kind of viewing fiction as a dream. Like, what was there about experience that had to be digested in this particular way? And I guess one critic I find really interesting, or I don't know if she even is a critic, is the psychologist Alice Miller, who like broke with the psychoanalytic institution. But, But she's written about like the relationship between writers biographies and what they write. And she's written about, I don't know, like Proust and Kafka. And she always comes back to the same thing, which is like, there's something about their family, specifically their relationship with their parents that they couldn't quite tell the truth about. Basically, they're protecting their parents. And that's why they write these like elaborate fictions. Virginia Woolf is in there too. And I guess I was kind of interested by this story that he creates that it seems like it's actually about in some way his relationship with his own son in some way that he's not admitting. And there's something there that he can't completely face. And there's some like shame surrounding it. Yeah, this felt just like a clue for some mm-hmm. reason. I'm not really sure Yeah, how to interpret it. The the whole part about him also being a father of a son. Yeah. I mean, how do you read it? I mean, I guess when it said now he understood why he had shirked the fictional son, I guess I feel like that's sort of indicating not the fact, but the possibility that when we invent stories, it's to cover up something that we don't want to admit. And that he's realizing that in his story, he's sort of like, messed up the part about the son. He left some bow untied. And in real life, he did too, because he left the boy there in this horrible situation. And he didn't seem to feel that bad for the boy. That He was just like, oh, let me get out of here and take my handkerchief. And like, both of you are annoying. 
And he seems like invested in this idea that the boy in the house sees him as a, as a romantic stranger in a bag. And he's sort of like building up the story of like this poor boy. He's terrified by rats. And then I come a romantic stranger with a bag. And then the moment when that's deflated seems to be when the boy is like, here, take this knife and murder my dad. And he's like, what? That's why you asked me here? Like, And it kind of feels like, oh, so like not because you looked out the window and saw this romantic stranger with a bag, but rather because you had your own plan that involved murdering your dad. And you were like, here's the guy who's going to fit into my plan. And I don't know if that maybe made him realize some generational something or like maybe some problem with his own son or some gap between how he perceives his relationship with his son and how his son perceives his relationship with him. I think it's really interesting what you just said, that that the boy is writing his own story. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's very frustrating to Clive, who's been writing a different story. It's the worst when you're writing a story (laughs) and someone in it is writing a different story. And it turned out to be like a nasty, sordid murder story. Yeah, where you're the murderer. (laughs) Exactly. I wanted to ask you what you thought that the last line meant. How did you interpret it? That he's also the the father of a son. I was wondering if there was some religious stuff there, too. I mean, there could be with the, the, you know, Bible quote. I would guess that there's something, you know, the fact that he's just met a boy who is so angry at his father that he wants someone to kill him um, oh, yeah, might open yeah. his eyes to how his own son could be feeling. And makes him realize that he didn't want to realize it. Yes. Yeah, so he changes the story to come up with a father who's just so awful that it couldn't possibly be identified with him, whereas the real father... It's just yeah. a guy in a terrible situation. Yeah. Who was maybe not the best father, but he's suffering too. Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, he changed his own role from the person who kind of like disappoints the boy in the house and is sort of like irrelevant and useless to the boy in the house. That's the reality. And in the story he makes up, he saves the boy's life. But then he leaves him there yeah, in this dangerous situation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There are just holes in all his stories. Yeah. And so we the few things we learn about Clive's existence is either he went to work for his wife's relative or he married his boss's relative. Right. He has a very small world. He works mm-hmm. for a company with no enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh He's in the office three days a week. He only gets to go out two days a week. So perhaps he doesn't know this countryside as well as he thinks. Oh, yeah. He has a son. It just sounds like a very dull, dull life. She makes it sound as dull as she possibly can. Well, Unlike Clive's life is not only boring, but it it feels like he's under constant surveillance. Like maybe that's what reminded me of my adolescence. It's just it feels like one was constantly going from between like, home and school and someone's always watching you and if you could just like wander off somewhere right and he can't tell his wife a story without it getting back to his boss Mm -hmm. yeah that also felt sort of familiar from childhood when we talked about this story you mentioned that everything leads up to Clive evading this ethical question Mm -hmm. Um, what is the ethical question about whether he should have saved the boy yeah I think it's it's like I guess our responsibility to the people who we meet who are in like a bad situation and what we can do, which is often quite limited, like what could Clive actually do? And then it feels like there's another ethical responsibility, which is like, how should he think about it? Or what's the story that he should tell about it? 
Do you think it's a story that, with a moral at the end, or do you think it's a story about the kind of unchained madness of, of fiction writing? Well, I mean, I guess, like, what is the moral status of fiction writing? I, that That is something that I've been thinking about lately. Like, I've been thinking about Tolstoy, who was my favorite writer my whole, like, adolescence. And then, I, you know, I went to grad school and studied Russian. And this was, like, a big part of my life was determined by my love for these books. And now when I look at them, I feel like the thing that I, I loved about those novels was how they made everything look like sort of an insoluble conundrum where nothing is anybody's fault and you can see everybody's point of view and everyone's sort of like justified from their own point of view. But there's some critics now who are like that kind of worldview. It gives you the feeling that nothing can actually be changed. Maybe that's not the most helpful way to tell stories. I mean, should stories be be a moral quagmire or should they be instructional? Well, that's the thing. Like my whole life, I believe that it should be a quagmire and that that's <laughs> what makes great art. And if you already know what the answer is, then it's bad art and you have to like not really be sure and you have to leave it unresolved. And it's true that there's a lot of horrible art and, and horrible novels that um, make it really clear who the villain is and then that person's punished. But could that be a coincidence? Could there be a way of writing art that doesn't sort of aestheticize that unresolvable quagmire and that doesn't kind of like aestheticize the rich tapestry of human suffering and that points to some kind of a way out? What would be the way to tell the story about what happened with the boy I mean, that's not something that I'm going to be able to solve. I'm just with, I'm still in the quagmire. <laughs> I mean, I think Warner's kind of in the quagmire, too, because she's not she's not reaching a conclusion here about what the problem is. You can't reach any conclusions because there are so many stories and versions of stories. Yeah. I don't know. Like, is there a moral? It, it feels like it kind of feels like he failed some kind of test, but I don't totally know what the test is or. Or what we can draw from that. Yeah, it wasn't the test he signed up for. No. And the story's sort of ambivalent about the father. You know, he's not evil. He's a guy in a bad situation who's not the best father. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not the best environment for the boy. But people, no one's in the best environment. No. Right? No. I mean, in a way, I feel like Clive is a third boy in the story because he's sort of infantilized by, in a sense, working for a paternal Mm -hmm. figure who keeps tabs on him and at the same time that his wife keeps tabs on him, that he's not allowed to go out more than two days a week, that he's, you know, he's sort of the child with the imagination as much as the boy in the house is. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing because that's when the novels get you. Like, at the time that I read... Anna Karenina, which was this huge book for me, like I didn't have a lot of control over the circumstances of my life. You know, my parents were in the middle of this like custody disagreement and there were all of these conflicting, contrasting stories and I couldn't really change them or do anything about this. So then I read this book that was like, oh, actually, like here's a way of of dealing with all these conflicting stories that you can give them all their weight and sort of relativize them and turn this like conflict into something delightful and edifying for other people. And that was a really useful coping mechanism for me as a young person. But then you get to be 
an adult. And then I don't know, I just I had this freak out like in the past five years, which is also I always wanted to write novels. And then I was finally able to do it. And I was like, oh, did novels ruin my whole life? And and is it Maybe I'm I'm bringing too much into this conversation about the story. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Clive Clive breaks out from his normal routine and writes a story in a sense yeah. and goes off in search of it. Yeah, it doesn't really work out so well for him. Though he does say at least it was a break, right? It was a change from his routine. Yeah, yeah. He feels that happiness at the beginning. I mean, that was another kind of interesting thing is that I. So I've listened to a lot of episodes of this podcast, and I was just thinking about how many of the stories are about how to get out of routine, how to get out of this like deadening kind of surveillance. It's usually a marriage and it's often an affair, but this one was something different. I kind of like that about it, that it could be a different story. Mm -hmm. Perhaps there's something intrinsic to the short story form that it's about the search for freedom. Mm -hmm. It's about finding something unusual to, to tell, right? You can't do a, a short story that's just in which everything is routine. Yeah, but routine is like a good starting place because it's very economical. You can be like, this is how it always was, and then and then something different happened. I mean, that's also why I wanted for this to do a story th that I didn't know by a writer I didn't really know because I've just been thinking about how the canon is formed by like what's in it. The Chekhov story, Lady with a Little Dog, and I love that story, but it, it feels like it has such a huge determining effect on the rest of short stories. I just feel like so many of short stories are in conversation with that particular story. And yeah, what if it wasn't like that? Yeah. What do you think um, Townsend Warner is in conversation with? Um, I mean, I think Don Quixote is in there because he kind of imagines this adventure for himself that's also like based on a building that he sees somewhere. And then he like runs off to make it real. And it comes out kind of like slapstick and out of control and then he makes up a glorifying story about it. I was looking at like what was going on and so it came out in 1961. So like 1960 was Psycho. I think she's in conversation with some kind of noir moment that was happening. Could you imagine following Clive into a different story? I guess so. There's something interesting about it being in England because it feels really like not capitalistic. Like I don't know, like the salesman that I think of is Death of a Salesman, where he's always trying to increase his sales and like think of something and become more charismatic. But like Clive is from this company that has no enterprise. And he know, <laughs> like he's like, oh, I'll just say I was going to go to this other house that looked like it had so much oak paneling and it needed so much <laughs> furniture wax. And then he's like, no, that's not going to work because like, they don't <laughs> applaud that where I am. He can take another train another day and, and run off in search of a different adventure, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It could be a, it could be a series. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Sylvia Townsend Warner, who died in 1978 at the age of 84, was the author of more than two dozen books of fiction, including the novel Lolly Willows and the story collections The Innocent and the Guilty and Kingdoms of Elfin. She published more than 100 stories in The New Yorker over the course of four decades. Elif Baterman is the author of one book of nonfiction, The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them, and two novels, The Idiot and Either Or, which was published earlier this year. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2010. You can download more than 180 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. 
The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.